Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Uh, we will get into 1 Samuel 2. Now, uh, I want to give us some biblical context here. Uh, what is happening, I, oh man, Anthony, I'm just going to have to get you to hook me up here. There you go. So the, the Old Testament scripture, I'm going to put this down, I'm going to try, but the Old Testament scriptures are, are split up into basically four sections, Torah, uh, which are the f- first five books of the Bible, history, prophets, and poetry. And we're going to be dealing, of course, with Samuel. And you have the prophets and then you have poetry. And this is helpful because it, it helps us to learn how to read the book. We, we don't read story in the same way that we would read an instruction manual. And so it's incredibly important that we understand how to read the book. And that's a biblical context. Go next. And the historical context. Now, uh, but before we get to this point, before we get to the point where we begin to read the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, I want to remind you of who the people of God are. Uh, they were, uh, remember, they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, and they are rescued by the hand of Moses, and they, they wander in the desert for 40 years, a trip that should have taken about two months, by the way. This isn't a small detour, right? This is a, like... Two months, they should have been in the promised land, but because of their constant disobedience, uh, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And finally, Joshua, Joshua brings them, Moses dies, Joshua brings them to the lip of, rather Moses brings them to the lip of the promised land, and Joshua brings them into the promised land. And then, Anthony, if you can go, and then, go ahead. Yep. So, and then we have the conquest, where in, in the conquest, you have the book of Joshua being written. You can go ahead. And this is happening between uh, around the 1200s BC to give us some context here. And the book of Joshua was, is about that. And then what happens next uh, is the Judges. Now, the book of Judges uh, takes place around the 1100s BC, and the book of Judges records that time. And this story, 1 and 2 Samuel, we must understand, is coming right after the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a mess. If you haven't read the book of Judges, uh, there was this really, uh, this cycle of sin of the people of God, and then they would be oppressed by the enemies of God, and then they would cry out to God, and then God would rescue them, and then once God would rescue them, they would sin again, and they would be oppressed by the, by, by the enemies of God, and then they would cry out to God, and over and over and over again, there was this cycle of repentance and oppression and deliverance, and yet they, just like a dog going back to its vomit, they went over and over and over again. And then we get into the monarchy. And the monarchy takes place between 1100 and about 400 BC. But the book of Samuel here, and Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles records that, the book of Samuel will take place between 1100 and 970 BC. So this is just giving you some historical context of of what we're dealing with. Because we're not only dealing with something that is uh, a sort of a different culture, but this is long. We're talking about 3,000 years ago. We're, We're delving into history. And then the narrative context, uh, the book itself. Uh, the book itself is split into four 
uh, four sections here, um, and you have 1 Samuel 1 to 7, and then you have 1 Samuel 8 to 31, 2 Samuel 1 to 20, and 2 Samuel 21 to 24. Now, uh, it's, it's very important to understand this one point, that 1 and 2 Samuel are one book, but the reason why we have them today as two books is because it was too long for scrolls, and so they split them up into 1 and 2 Samuel. So 1 and 2 Samuel is one narrative telling one story. And in the beginning, we have Hannah's song, which we'll be looking at today, the birth of Samuel and Israel versus the Philistines. And then you have this arc in 1 Samuel 8 to 31. You have this arc, this rise and this fall of the first king of Israel, King Saul. But then you have in 2 Samuel 1 to 20 that overlaps is you have this rise and this fall of King David. Now, King David, for us, I understand, is seen as a hero. He is the giant slayer, right? But David has a tragic fall. As I said, this is a very, very dark and tragic book. And then finally, at the end, uh, in non-chronological order, there are some poems there about the failure of Saul, a memoir of David, and the failures of David. And that's the narrative context. That is where we're going. Uh, th that is what we must have in mind as we travel through the book. Now, the story opens up for us with a man called Elkanah, Hannah's husband. But peep this. It already gets spicy from here. He has another wife. He has another wife called Penina. Now, P Penina had, was able to have children, and Hannah was not. Verse 6 says this, And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because Yahweh had closed her womb. Now, when we get into Old Testament narratives, I want you to understand that everything we read isn't a prescription it isn't saying that God was okay with men having multiple wives. In fact, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that every single time someone was practicing uh, polygamy, having more than one uh, uh, wife, it always ended badly. There was always dissension. There was always dysfunction. And here we have Hannah, who is infertile. And I know that for many people, even here, you could be here and listening or listening later on, and you've experienced this dark night of the soul because it just hasn't happened or you know it never will. And I want to say I, I see that and I acknowledge you. And Hannah is experiencing this infertility in the face of someone who continues to mock her. She's living with her husband's other wife who would constantly throw that fact in her face. Can you imagine for just a moment. Can you imagine Hannah's grief and shame? And in this cultural context, to not have children was tantamount to being nothing. See, today, at least, I wanna say, that we can uh, uh, have a career, or you can have a side hustle that will, uh, you'll be able to build a, uh, uh, an identity off of. But in this time, to not have children it's, it's difficult for us to understand the depth of this, that to not have children is to be nothing, is to be seen as worthless. Her shame is deep. And rather than becoming bitter, Hannah pours out her grief onto the Lord bitterly. In verse 10, it says this, She was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh, to the Lord, and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, 
verse 11. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah's distress, Hannah's bitterness, her shame, her pain did not make its way into the world by inflicting pain on other people. Because this is what happens to us. Is it not true that it's shamed people who shame people, right? It's people who are in pain that inflict pain. But rather than uh, issuing pain and, and shame on others, what Hannah does is that she pours it out on the Lord and she prays and she vows. She says, if you will give me a child, if you will open up my womb, I promise I will give this child back to you. And she conceives, and this is what happens in verse 27. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my petition that I made to him. And therefore, verse 28, I have lent him to Yahweh, to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh, to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And so just, just peep this. Hannah is struggling I mean, she is in pain. She is, uh, 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 like, you can imagine she's maybe almost, almost becoming bitter. And she prays to the Lord to give her a child, to give her particularly a son. And the Lord gives her a son. And what does she do? After three to five years of weaning this child, Samuel, she gives him back to the Lord. And Hannah fulfills her vow to give Samuel back to the giver of life. And she begins to pray Again, you see, Hannah doesn't just pray when she needs something. She's not following the pattern that we've already become accustomed to in the book of Judges where once uh, you get what you want, once you get deliverance, once God comes through, as it were, we turn our back on him. In fact, Hannah is about that life. In the good and the bad, she is pouring herself out to God and she explodes with this, one of the most beautiful prayers in scripture, in fact, it's of such a nature, this prayer, that it can only be sung, right? There, there are prayers, and then there are songs, and there are prayers that can only be sung. This is a prayer that is won through adversity. This is a prayer that is sung with scars. This is a prayer of someone who has been through it. This is the song of a sufferer who knows that with the Lord God on her side, nothing will prevail against her. And Hannah begins with tears of bitterness, but ends with shouts of praise. There's an arc to suffering. And you may still be in the middle of your own arc of suffering, and you may be thinking, when will my tears turn to joy? When Will I conceive? When will I be free of pain? When will I be delivered from these circumstances? Maybe you're on the other side of the ark and you have been delivered from circumstances and you have been freed from cancer and are healed and you are here and you have conceived after a long bout with infertility. Whether wherever you are on the ark of suffering and pain and disappointment, whether you are right now, listen, whether you are right now in a season of tears or of praise, my word to you is to feel those tears. To f we don't run from hard emotions. There are no such thing as, as bad emotions. 
That's the language that we use. That somehow anger and fear and sadness are bad. They're not bad. They're just difficult. And we don't run from them. And Hannah, wherever she was in her arc of suffering, whether it was weeping bitterly or singing praise, we do that in the presence of the one who hears, in the presence of the one who feels with us. Tears and joy. Listen, our life is full of them. The call for us is to direct both our tears and our joy toward the one who loves us and is with us in and through it all. And throughout her praise, her prayer, her song, Hannah encapsulates what the kingdom of God is all about, who God is. In fact, we can't understand 1 and 2 Samuel without this song, and we can't understand the rest of the Bible without these books. And she's going to speak to three realities, these three threads that run throughout the entire book. The first one is this, that God is absolutely holy. That God is absolutely holy. Come back with me to the text. That after Hannah expresses her, her, her heart's fullness and her rejoicing in God's rescue, his deliverance, and his salvation, this is what she sings. Verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for Yahweh, the Lord, is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God is holy. The word there, kadosh. Kadosh. God is holy. Holiness is first and foremost an attribute of God. But what exactly is it? What does it mean for God to be holy? We generally think about holiness in the moral register, right? That holiness is to behave well, to be, to be good, to behave good. Holiness, we think, is just acting right. Now, it's not not that, but it's not primarily that. Morality, when it comes to holiness, is important, but it's not primary. Holiness, first and foremost, is about being and only then about behaving. Our behaving, how we act, comes out of our being, who we are. And for God, it means that his, listen, his ontology, I don't, I, I don't know of a better word, his ontology, class, his being. Like he, God's being, his being is different. God is built different. He is different. There is no thing There is no person, there is no place or concept or ideology that can contain God according to us. To say that God is holy is to say that God is holy other. To say that God is holy is to first say that God is holy other. He is separate. He is distinct. He is other. There is no one, nothing like him. He existed before existence. He did not become a God. He did not evolve into a supreme, supernatural being. God is not the yin to Satan's yang. There is no one that stands next to him. And our minds are not built to understand this. Our minds are built to worship in the face of it. 
How can we, listen, how can we understand the unfathomable? How can we understand something or someone? How can we comprehend the holy other? How can we comprehend an incomparable reality, an incomparable being, even, even, let me calm down. Eve, because we've got a long way to go. I've got to conserve my energy. Even, even if we think about it in terms of the concepts that we do understand, like time and space, and what's time but just like a sequence of moments, and I mean space, even the things that we don't see, air. How is it that before time existed, God, Pause for a moment. Think. How is it that before matter, God, nothing before nothing, if we were to go back to the beginning of time, whatever your reading of that is, if we were able to go back to the very beginning of our universe, of reality, of the basic elements that the world is made up of, if we were to go back, Nothing. I mean, our minds can't even comprehend nothing. You know why? Because to comprehend nothing means that there must be me, something to comprehend the nothingness. We, we, don't, we just we don't get it. And before that, God. To notice nothingness, right? There'd have to be someone or something to notice said nothingness, meaning there's something. I'm talking about something we can't even comprehend. God. Is there and yet we, 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 we try to put a collar on him I mean, do you get the conundrum that in the face of that God and so tell me tell me who you're gonna compare God to right now T- tell me, who can you compare God to Job tried let, let me tell you what God's response to Job was then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said who is this? Whose man is this? Like, who's this? Who darkens my counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man. I will question you and make it known, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling bands and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said to the world and said to the waters, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or did you know that we still have not, like, there's still places in the world that humans have not explored? And, like, we're, this is thousands of years after. We still haven't been there. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? 
Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. Who could we ever compare God to? Nothing. No one. Ever. At all. To say that God is holy is first and foremost to say that he is holy other. And it is out of his holy otherness, W-H-O-L-L-Y, his holy otherness that he operates. And it's precisely this fact that because God is built different, then this leads us to the second thing that we learn about God and his ways from Hannah's song. And it's this, that God is absolutely sovereign. Sovereign. I'm not sure how that jolts you here, this, how that comforts you or jolts you here this morning, but Scripture, through and through, is crystal clear on this fact. God is sovereign. He is utterly in control, utterly and completely, and there is nothing that is outside of His control. And Scripture makes no apologies about this, by the way, like we do. Scripture makes no apologies in any way, shape, or form, does not soften the fact that God is sovereign. And yet this reality of God's sovereignty does not cancel out the fact that our choices are real, that our choices matter. We're not puppets on a string, and yet not one action is outside of the purview of God. Tell me who understands this. We live and we move within this mystery. God's sovereignty is of such a kind that it never cancels out the reality of our choices. And our real free choices are of such a kind that they never are outside of God's full control. Sorry to confuse you, but that's where we are. That's what scripture teaches. Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We need builders. We need bodyguards, and yet it's God. But it's not God unmediated. It's God mediated through people, through builders and through bodyguards. And yet, this is the mystery, that we can have bodyguards and builders, and it can come to nothing without God. Augustine said it best, that without God, we can't, but without us, he won't. God, though, is absolutely sovereign. There is not one area of existence over which God is not over and above. And this is why Hannah sings this in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts from top to bottom from left to right in life and death in poverty and in riches god is utterly in control of it all this does not excuse the fact that it's us who unleash death and it's us who unleash the dysfunction in the world that creates poverty this is not scripture uh, uh, saying that God approves of this. This is scripture attesting to the fact that God stands over 
all, even if we do not understand how. Plenty of times in the book of Samuel, we're going to see God allowing. Listen, this is, this is so strange to me. Because if I was an all-powerful being, how, how, why would I allow things that grieve my heart? But you'll see, and we'll see together in the book of Samuel, that God allows the very things that grieve his heart. God has the right and the power to do and to allow all that he decides to do and to, and to allow. Listen, God is the only real free being in the universe. He can do whatever he pleases. God is utterly sovereign. Come with me on a little journey through scripture. Proverbs 16, 31 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, right? So, so like he's like, like Star City, craps table. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Matthew 10, 29 and 31 says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Like, like so, listen, so there's sparrows are worth nothing. They're worth virtually nothing. We don't even have pennies in our currency, right? They, they, it was so weird to me when I came here, you just round up or round down. Like we just don't care about pennies. And, and, and God is saying, isn't a sparrow like sold for a penny? Two sparrows, 50 cent, not, not even a quarter, sorry, not 50 cent, like 0.5 of a penny. One sparrow. And when they fall to the ground, doesn't your Lord know about it? Doesn't he care? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of much more value than sparrows. Isaiah 45 says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Do we have a category for a God who is so outside of our thinking of who God needs to be that he can say unequivocally, I create calamity? I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Listen to this. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles? Job 12 says, in his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of mankind. Listen, I can go on and on and on. But why is this important? For two reasons. It's important that we understand and we believe and we live according to the reality that God is in control first. This is what scripture teaches. But second, this truth will carry you through the deepest and darkest trenches of your life. There is nothing else that can carry you in the darkness, except knowing that God is in control. God is sovereign. It's not a, 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 like just a label that you throw on your problems. It is a deep well of security and hope in a world that has gone mad, in a world that is full of darkness, a world of sin, a world of chaos. How is it? How is it that we can continue to follow Jesus when we get the cancer diagnosis? Are you prepared for that? 
How is it that we can follow Jesus when we find out that we have blood clots in our lungs? How is it that we can follow Jesus and worship him in the middle of our trials? How is it that we can face death and decay and the betrayal of others and all that life throws at us? Listen, I don't need to know you specifically to know that you've suffered and that you will suffer. And how is it that we will continue to follow Jesus when it looks like life is all crashing down on us? How can we face all of hell unleashed? How can we withstand the exhaustion of yet another night at, in the ED with our sick children who cannot breathe? How can we face the derision of the world? How can we face our, even our own failure, our own pain and sickness and the death of our dreams? How is it that we can follow Jesus in the face of it all? Because God is utterly and completely and totally and absolutely in control. The Lord is our comfort. He is our hope. He is our shield. He is our hiding place in the time of trouble. We can rest in the midst of the crushing anxieties of life because this very God who is in control is with us and is for us. And listen, he will turn every single bad and evil and dysfunctional thing for your good. You need to know this. Everything isn't good. Everything is not good. But he will turn even the things that were meant to destroy you into things that will, can only drive you deeper into his presence. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the things that are meant to derail God's plan of redemption and sin and decay and rebellion, our own stupidity will be redeemed. Isn't that good news? That your stupidity and my stupidity and my choices that have led me into sin will even those things be redeemed. How do I know this? Because the greatest evil that ever occurred in the world, the crucifixion of the Son of God was redeemed. Why? For our life. So even if everything will be called in and will be transformed and the devil will be left a mockery. Because he wants to use everything against you. And yet God will say, I'm going to turn it all for their good. The things that are meant to destroy you will be conduits of God's beauty in this world and redemption. This is why it's important to know that God is in control. Not only a little bit, he is fully in control. This is, what, this is what carried Hannah from tears to joy, her knowledge that God is absolutely sovereign. And he uses that sovereignty for the good of those who love him. And the final thing that I want to say that we're going to see throughout the book of 1 and 2 Samuel that features here prophetically in Hannah's song is this, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. We're going to see this all the time. God doesn't just oppose the pride out there. He will oppose pride in this room. He does not 
just oppose pride in our enemies. He will oppose the pride in his own very people first. And we're going to see this all throughout this book, that he's going to oppose the pride of his own people, and he will exalt the humble. There's this great reversal in the kingdom of God. The first shall be last, the least shall be the greatest, the hungry shall be full. This is how God works in the world. He takes the wisdom of humanity and he turns it on its head. Come back with me to verse 5 real quick. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. They've prostituted themselves out for bread. That's what he's saying here. For those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. I mean, this is rags to riches. And inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. It is in God's very nature to invert and to subvert our human ideas of greatness, of what it means to quote-unquote win to be making it in life. He subverts and inverts all of it. I mean, who would choose poverty? Who would choose pain? Who would choose death? Who would choose hunger? No one. Sin, decay, poverty, hunger, infertility, and brokenness are not original. They are mutations of the good. But within the world that includes all of these things, Don't get it twisted. God is still in control. And because he is ultimately in control, he can reverse the fortunes. And because God is in ultimate control, he can take the wisdom and the values of the fallen order and reverse them. God kills and he brings life. He puts you in the grave and can lift you out of it. He's the only person in the universe who can go to you and say, listen, boy, I brought you in this world. I can take you out. Now, I've used that wrongfully. I have no power to do that. I have no authority to do that. God does. Jesus says, do not fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can throw both body and soul into Gehenna, into hell, into Sheol. He makes poor and he makes rich. He humbles and he exalts. And us humans are like, where do you get off God how dare you this is what we do this is what we do with our lives we put God in the dock we question him but because God can raise the poor from the dust and he can lift the needy from the ash heap and make them sit with royalty we have hope and why can he do this verse 8 ends with this for the pillars of the earth are the lord's and on them he has set the world the pillars of the earth are a way of saying the very foundation of reality like if we if we had a a a a, a metaphysical uh, shovel like this like and we just dug with beneath everything we know everything we don't know all of reality all the elements all the periodic tables if we look beneath under all of it what do we find that god is the one holding up the world Verse 8 reminds us that this world is ultimately God's. He has set it on its foundation, and that's why he can reverse the order of the world. Listen, 
The reason why God raises the humble and brings down the proud is because he is the ground of reality. Again, if we were to dig under it all, God. And what we will see Israel and Saul and David do over and over again is that they're going to claim this God but act very differently to his character. And so they will act proudly. But what does God do to the proud? They will act, they will, they will exalt themselves. But what will the God of reversals do to those who exalt themselves? You see, God will oppose pride wherever it is found, whether that is within his people or without, because he himself is a holy and sovereign and humble God. This is who God is. This is what I want us to get through this series. Of, I, I want us to know who he is and how he operates. And the question that Samuel will ask is this, will there be a leader? Will there be a king Will there be someone who is like this holy and humble God? Let me give you the answer to this pop quiz class as the band comes up. No, they won't. And this is the tragedy of this book. God's response to the coming failure of Saul and David and all of Israel is what? The holy God, the holy other, the separate one, the distinct one will become one of us. The sovereign one, the one who controls all things and subjects all things to himself and even is subjected to our barbarity, our sin, our fallenness. This humble God of reversals will pull off the greatest reversal of all time and become one of us. Why? Why? Why all this trouble? Why all this mess? Why would God go through the trouble of an ontological change in his being and become human while still being fully God? Why does he do this? Let me give you the answer because God is the most stubborn being in the universe. God is the most stubborn person you will ever encounter because he will refuse to allow this world, to allow the ones who he loves to go to hell in a handbasket. He will refuse our world to be swallowed up by evil, our evil and the enemies. He will refuse our world to be swallowed up by the decay and the dysfunction and the death and infertility and hunger and poverty to have the last word. Why would God go through all the trouble? Why would God the Son become human? Love. You see, listen, Hannah's song and the, the, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and Scripture as a whole are fueled by one thing. God's stubborn refusal to let the world he created, the world he loves, perish. And maybe today is your day of reversals. Maybe today is the day that you submit to your life to this holy one, to this sovereign one, to the one who opposes pride and exalts the humble, to the sovereign one, to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me invite you as I finish to consider this, that the one who created you, that the one who knows you, that the one who was operating over 3,000 years in Hannah's ago, in Hannah's life, the one who has orchestrated the world so that you would be even right now under the sound of my voice to hear this invitation is calling you home because he loves you. 
And maybe you're here and you'd like to begin your journey with Jesus today. Don't let this moment pass. And so as we sing and as we celebrate the Lord's body broken for us, as we celebrate this holy and sovereign and humble, exalting God, I invite you, if you love Jesus, to partake of the meal with us and to pray and to sing like it matters. Let me pray with us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for this book, these books. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the Old Testament scriptures. And we pray, Lord, with, with Paul, that we would be, Lord, admonished, that we would be taught, that we would be humbled, that this would cut us, only to heal us. Help us to submit, Lord, to what you are saying and doing even now. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that as, as we need you, may you come. As we need you, may you come. I pray for a softness of spirit. I pray that we would be able to receive what you have for us, however costly that may be. Give us what we need, Lord, the divine power to understand the love with which you have loved us. Jesus, we love you above all. Jesus, you are beautiful, and you are holy, and you are holy other, and you are sovereign. You are in control, and God, you are a humble God. And so we thank you that you've used your sovereignty for our good and not for our harm. So may we sing and may we pray, may we rejoice and may we grieve, all in the light of the one who loves us. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' powerful name. The church said? Amen. Amen.